0: Web3 With Me is a discussion style show where creators, marketers, entrepreneurs and investors share how they are solving the core problem plaguing Web3, perception. The perception problem is preventing mass adoption. It is narrative, framing and terminology, and it's inhibiting onboarding, engagement and retention of users and customers. Web3 currently requires a level of technical understanding and responsibility due to a lack of protections that the masses do not currently desire. Web3 with me will provide insights for Web3 native companies and others considering a Web3 strategy to tackle that perception problem. My guest today is Ryan Jones, director of product management at ConsenSys. Ryan started his career in traditional finance at Goldman, then got the startup bug, founding Pixby, a company that was changing the way consumers and brands interact. Ryan joined Pivotal Labs in 2015 as a product manager, where he embraced the unique culture there and grew a team from scratch to over 200 people spanning across multiple countries. He got the Web3 bug in November, 2021, when he joined Consensys, the iconic enterprise blockchain company operating MetaMask and many other notable Web3 brands. We talk about what it takes to scale product teams and how Web3 is finally hitting a technological inflection point where mass adoption is inevitable. LFG baby, let's start vibing
1: zach french is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by zach during web3 with me shall be considered legal advice all the opinions expressed by zach and his guests are solely their own opinions all content in web3 with me is for informational purposes only zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during web3 with me
0: welcome to the show ryan
1: hey thanks for having me after to be here
0: yeah i've been super excited for this conversation um we have a mutual friend in clinton reeves uh from back at your pivotal days that made the connection and uh, i've enjoyed getting to know you over a few calls before the episode And i'm excited to to dive in um with you
1: yeah it's been great looking forward to it
0: so i usually start these episodes with letting my audience get to know who you are Uh, i call it your founding story so feel free to start wherever you'd like
1: cool uh yeah so maybe i'll start uh with my um career in terms of where it started uh third in traditional finance so that woman Sachs was there for about four years uh managing both asset class portfolios on discretion uh my undergrad uh was focused on finance and entrepreneurship um after that i essentially what we call the the babson itch uh with, went and started a tech company uh with a good friend from college uh after that realized i wanted to stay in tech i had no idea what i was doing uh when we started that uh First company. Uh, so great learning experience. From there, I realized that I uh, really wanted to better understand how everything functioned. Those who did really well over at Goldman had a background already in finance. So I thought, let me go understand uh, how I can actually build an application and how all that will there So I went to a coding bootcamp. camp. Uh, I was the only person that decided not to become a software engineer. My options were to be like a bad software engineer or leverage my skill sets, hopefully somewhere else. And that's what so <laughs> management. Um, and, uh, and so I ended up at a company called Pivotal Software where I started in our consultancy side in Pivotal Labs. And the whole premise there was if I am teaching other PMs how to be great product managers, hopefully that makes me a decent product manager. I uh, did that for about a year and then got tapped to, uh, go into our R and D group where we were actually building a lot of products that were solving the problems, uh, for our consultancy Clients, which was they could determine value and want to build out value pretty quickly uh, in terms of new software products, but they couldn't actually release it quickly. Um, and so it, was, it would take like six months to actually get a release out. And so we started building products where it changed that to literally 30 seconds. And that became like the major revenue driver uh, for the company. And I, I got to build out a bunch of new products and teams and scale them from, say, like 10 or 13 people to 200. And I got to do that multiple times, which was awesome. Uh, and drive down yeah, revenues in like year one to over $100 million uh, ARR for each of those products, which was great. Uh, so it was like a super unique experience. And, and there was no way uh, I could leave that uh, at the time. Um, that ultimately helped us go uh, public. And then we got acquired by VMware. During that time, uh, I started to learn. So I learned about Bitcoin back in 2012. Uh, at that point, I had no technical background. Uh, cryptocurrencies have been around before, so I was like, oh, I don't know, this thing's weird. I was over in traditional finance. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing, and and it was really Ethereum that got me like interested. By then, I had some like technical background. I started writing smart contracts. I was like, wow, this is like programmable money. This is super interesting. Uh, and so on the side, I was I was doing kind of work in the crypto space uh, while I was over at Pivotal, and I had a good friend who actually tried to get me to join Consensus, probably like five six years ago now maybe a little longer but it was in the midst of building all those products out uh over at pivotal and i was like I, this is such a unique experience I, I can't leave yet and so after uh we got acquired by vmware and i was there for a year that's when i started to question like why don't i just do what i'm doing nights and weekends full-time um ultimately of course looked around at a bunch of different companies but at consensus uh i so happy to talk about like kind of the why and all of that but uh at consensus Maybe real quick, I started as uh, head of product for protocols team. Um, we kind of realigned strategies around there, built out the product group. Uh, and so the protocols team is responsible for Ethereum clients, working with all Core devs. Uh, we kicked off our new ZPA uh, called uh, Linea. And then from there, I moved to what we call uh, our direct users group uh, to help out from the product perspective as well, which is Metamask, Metamask Institutional, and um, our staking operator, Consensus Staking. So i uh, currently focused on getting a few new products off the ground in that, in that space. Uh, I'm super excited with uh, what we're working on.
0: Wow, that was, that was concise, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> you really, you went through it. Uh, we got every stage. Let me ask you this, though. I mean, a lot I don't there. think uh, a lot of people uh, will go learn how to write code and then decide not to be a software engineer. Um, what was it about product management that kind of pulled you in?
1: Yeah, so uh, I think the big parts there that were really interesting to me is, one, one I love building. So actually, I come from a, a family of builders, uh, home builders to be exact. So I like, uh, grew up uh, sucking wood chips out of walls before they could put the drywall on there uh, during my summers. Um, so yeah, I think I just love building. But for me, product management is really unique because it really sits in kind of the middle of both business design and engineering. And really, like the whole point of being a, a PM is you're there as service to others and supporting them to like get the best out of your team. And like, I really enjoy like team sports as well um, and bring all those together in one place. is like a really unique position. And that's what really enticed me uh, to get into product management over anything else.
0: Yeah. I mean, in, in a way, product managers are CEO of whatever product they're in charge of. Right. You're managing multiple teams to try to achieve a goal. Um, yeah. Which may include every team, right? Like at least one member from every team. I'm sure it doesn't always, um, I'm sure a lot of it's more like technical focus, but um, yeah, you, you kind of get that autonomy of being an entrepreneur inside of a company.
1: For sure. I do kind of stray away a bit from the like CEO mantra for a PM because sometimes that could like determine that dece- like the CEO is in charge and they make the ultimate decisions on everything. Whereas a, a PM is, is a little bit more in that like service and you're you're trying to get the right people to make those decisions and uh ultimately it it, it does fall a lot on the pm but a big thing um uh, when it comes to like pivotal in the way that we would coach there is like shared ownership right and so like if something goes wrong or if something goes well it should be on the entire team to work together and not just fall all the time onto the pm um and i think that's like a huge uh change for a lot of groups and a lot of teams and i think that's like integral to like uh making very successful product teams
0: yeah what what so you went to pivotal and you were actually coaching other pms on how to like what like how did you transition into into that role instead of just being a pm yourself
1: yeah so uh Pivot labs right that was the whole premise like we, we were a consultancy firm but what was unique is people would travel to us and work in our office and so they would be flying from, <clears throat> we had people from Russia, Japan, uh, Europe, and across the US, like literally fly to San Francisco, work in our office, work next to us for a series of, of weeks or, or even a few months. And the whole point there is that uh, they wanted to get removed from their culture, uh, from wherever they were, so that they could work in a totally different environment. And so, what we'd do is we'd have our engineers pair program. We'd have our designers pair with their designers, and our PMs would pair with their PMs. And so, you'd start off by like showing them how to do everything and how like every company or, or product would have a problem that they were looking to solve or try to figure out. Uh, and so, we would go through and leverage a bunch of different methodologies to actually go in and accomplish it. And so, yeah, uh, you would show them how to do it. You kind of watch them, coach them along the way, let them fail here and there. And then eventually, by the end, they should be running uh, 100% by themselves. And so you would essentially let that team go. They would go back uh, to their kind of core offices and continue leveraging uh, those skill sets. So, yeah, so it was it was a great learning environment because we got to try so many different things. We got to work across so many different uh like products and industries, um, and like the way in which you coach PMs, everyone's starting from a different place. So you spend the first like week to understand like what, essentially what level they're at and then how to coach them along the way, uh, to kind of like a a lean product development sort of, uh, methodologies.
0: That's really cool. So there's like a, there's an air of like, um, like professional and personal development that came along with working with the company at Pivotal.
1: Huge, huge! Uh, I, like that was that was really what drove my uh, all of my learnings. I would say I had like a very good mentor, uh, Janice Frazier. Like she's an amazing product person, uh, and like I learned a ton from her. She also, I'll maybe I'll throw it out there. She just put out a, a new book, worth a, worth a read. Um, yeah, Eric Reese does a foreword on it. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a great book. Um, yeah, and she she helped a ton in terms of like my career and, and learnings as well.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. So take me through your next step is as you as you create uh, you start with a team of 10 people and start to grow this to 200 people. What yes. are you what are you learning throughout this process? What What is it that you the skills that you may be inherent, like maybe had already and what kind of new skills that you have to acquire to take it to that level?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great point. So uh, it was a pretty unique situation, I would say. So maybe maybe a little bit of a, a story uh, to add to it. Uh, two CEOs, uh, Pivotal and VMware's uh, CEO, got on stage. Uh, and they said, we are making a Kubernetes offering because uh, the Kubernetes was essentially eating the world at that time. Um, and we're going to have it out by the state. <clears throat> we had a very small team working on it. Uh, we were not going to hit those timelines. And uh, it started uh, over in, um, in Ireland. And so I was essentially voluntold. It was, uh, do you want to go to Ireland to go see if we can get this timeline up uh, up and running? And I said, no. And they said, you're going to Ireland to go get the timeline <laughs> up and running. <laughs> and, uh, no,
0: sir, you are going.
1: <laughs> you are going. Uh, and it was great. I, I had an amazing experience. But yeah, so moved over to Ireland for essentially six months uh, to, to start expanding a team. And uh, ultimately, like when you're a PM, right, you have certain levers that you can pull. Um, you can either... If you want to get all the scope in, uh, you can essentially like push the timelines. Uh, and then of course, more people doesn't necessarily mean faster. It takes some time to actually onboard them. Or the other one is you just completely cut scope. And so the joke was like, we we went in there with the hatchet and we destroyed the scope of yeah, exactly. Just went straight through and we're like, what is the smallest thing that we can do to provide value to the customers that were essentially lining up for this, uh, this offering? And like what exactly did they needed to just get up and running on day one. So that was the first part. And then uh, because like of what we were building and, and the companies that we were building for, we did have a series of of uh, customers that were like ready to onboard. And so we knew we were going to scale this thing very quickly. And so the parts that I didn't actually realize were going to happen, and I think, was like invaluable in terms of learnings. Was different team sizes, you need to have different structures. And you need to have like different ways that you operate in order to work efficiently. And so we went from essentially one team, right, of like 10 people uh, to by the end, it must've been uh, twenty oh, about 20 teams. And so how do you start scaling? And we had to start putting in leveling. And the time that we started shifting was, uh, you don't need a lot of structure if you're under 20 people. Once you get about 30, then it changes the game in terms of how you have to structure another change and another shift is about 75. And then the next one is around like the one twenty, one thirty mark, month. Uh, and, and like, you do have to start putting in like line management, and you do have to start putting in a little bit more oversight and, and you have to make sure that you have cascading intent. And so it's really, really fascinating to see how uh, we had to do that. And we had to do it- fast right like all this happened in a year so pretty much every quarter we were restructuring the teams we were refiguring out like how does this work we were lucky because at pivotal we had a similar sort of we had, we had a uh, 65 teams building uh like our core flagship product at the time so we were able to leverage some of those learnings from that other group to pull them in and ask for feedback as we were scaling out uh of what worked and what didn't and so that's why i like I couldn't leave at that time because it was just like such an amazing experience to like figure out and how to structure teams and all the pains that are associated with it and like leveling up and bringing in PMs, uh, which is such a unique experience. But yeah, I think the biggest part there is just realizing that there is a very different cadence and a very different structure depending on the size of your product group that you're actually going after.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. as As I hear this, and this is definitely confirmation bias, so bear with me. Um, I think of, you know, the power of decentralized versus centralized management. Um, was that a conversation that you were having when you were scaling?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this it, is it, an interesting one. This is certainly like stuff that we're trying to figure out at, at Consensus, And I do think like the experience has been helpful. We, we did go through a pretty big restructuring of MetaMask. Um, and it's a similar sort of setup where it was 13 people and, and now MetaMask is like 150 uh, and before, maybe there wasn't a lot of structure, and so now we, we were able to structure it. And the, the like the best teams are very much empowered product teams, right? You want to make sure that it's uh, they are the ones that are able to go and make decisions and go drive value, but you do need to like make sure there's some form of an alignment. And so I tend to think like the best uh, companies and best product uh, groups are those that have both top down and bottoms up the information and the degree of detail is of course going to be different depending on, uh, kind of which level that you sit at. Right. And so there should be aligned goals, aligned milestones, uh, how everyone fits into that, like strategy and vision. Um, and, and then more data and information should be coming up from the bottom to then reassess and change if you need, or, or tell you if you need to change any form of strategy that's associated with it. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's I think the premise of like everything needs to be decentralized. I don't, I don't agree with, right. Decentralization is a spectrum. Uh, it depends company. on like <laughs> what part of the stack. Yeah. And, and like, I'm a big believer that like a hybrid model tends to be the one that always wins, right? Like you go one way too far or the other way too far. It's like never going to work. So like, what are, what parts can you take is really the, the ultimate uh, challenge.
0: Yeah. I had a, a former guest that put it, pretty eloquently and that he said it's efficiency versus resilience, Mm -hmm. um, when you're choosing between centralization and decentralization respectively. Um, so that's, that's cool to hear from, from firsthand experience. Uh, was the, just out of curiosity, was the team distributed, uh, across the world or were they local?
1: Uh, for like Metamask or for Pivotal? For Pivotal. So that that was an interesting one. So we started, uh, with pretty (laughs) distributed. So we had like Ireland and the U S and then we did make the decision to pull the core of it all together in Palo Alto. Um, and like it is, it does make a pretty big difference to especially when you're building out a brand new product to have everyone in the same room, um, where you can just walk over. And so I think at, at that stage, we probably had about 80 people all in like one office in one location. Um, and it wasn't a need to go there every day, but it was like a three, it was, before like COVID, uh, it was a hybrid sort of environment. So it was like three days a week that everyone was kind of in that office, um, which make it, made it much easier. But yeah, we, we tried to have everyone there. And then there would be some offshoots, right? And so it goes back to like, what are you doing and, and what are the teams that are involved? Anyone who's like part of the court does help to have them at least same time zones and working closely together. And then there's times where there's uh, additional work that can be done that is a little separated and that you can have a little bit more of a distributed team.
0: So you, yeah, you, you eventually bring them back in. I guess this is all happening over the course of a year though, right? So yeah. like, was, was Pivotal public at that time, by the way, or was it?
1: Were you Pivotal sprung? was public. Yes. Okay.
0: So you had like, I guess some, uh, I guess some capital levers to pull on to fund something yes. like that. It's not cheap to, 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 to get everybody to move to one area and get a big enough office space, especially in Palo Alto.
1: Yes. It was nice because it was, a, it was a joint product between VMware and Pivotal so it was essentially blank check to get the thing up and running. Uh, nice. so that certainly was was nice to have. Uh, so yeah we were able to take, spin the thing up super fast and then we had I think something like 5,000 or 10,000 sales people that were able to start selling this thing as soon as we got it up and running. So it was it was a, it was a beast uh, which was helped just like put uh, gasoline on the fire. It was awesome. Yeah.
0: What, what, what kind of role did you have as, you know, leading one of these things in terms of like the go-to-market, like actually going and getting the salespeople and all that? Were you handing that over to somebody in the revenue, op, revenue side of things? Or were you actually helping kind of scale that way too?
1: Uh, yeah. So luckily, because uh, there are existing companies, like they already had all the structures in place. But what we did is uh, we, of course, had like a, a main salesperson. That would go and work with the rest of the sales reps and then we would spend a ton of time educating of course the sales reps on like what is the value props how do we sell this thing like why is it like what are customers actually wanting and why and then examples of how customers are using it and then another thing too was uh i I was luckily able to do like an entire asia trip uh i think i flew something like thirty thousand miles or something ridiculous um and I got to meet with a bunch of customers in every like major city, the same sort of thing to go through uh, like what it was that we were building or how to leverage it uh, and why it's different than all the other offerings out there and like what our vision was for the future. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was very much like trying to stay involved with customers. And we would have, I think something that was unique is we we're building server infrastructure tech. And so like, this is, you're, you're running like thousands of applications and, and it, it got to a point where like it wasn't possible, but if it went down, right? This is again, like distributed systems. If it went down, like the world would literally stop, right? Like hospitals are running on it. Planes are running on it. your credit cards are running on it. Like it, everything would come to an end. Um, and so it was interesting because usually a lot of those times you're moving super slow, right? A lot of companies would move slow in terms of getting some products out, but like we knew that we needed to iterate and iterate quickly. And so we had design partners Uh, and so like a series of about 10 of them and we would talk to them almost on a weekly basis. And we were putting out releases, uh, almost on a weekly basis as well. And so they're getting to the point where they're like, we we need to slow down. So we did have to have like a more of like a monthly, uh, release cadence just to like allow for them to keep up. Um, but that was also just a a really unique kind of use case within the kind of server infrastructure tech and like the cadence and how closely you get to work with customers. And that, that was like what made it ultimately very successful. So
0: risk-adjusted product development, got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's a new kind. You know, I know we're, we were formerly Agile, Lean, <laughs> now, we got a lot riding on our shoulders and we got to be a little yeah. bit more careful. Uh, <laughs> yes,
1: yes. A lot of testing goes into to everything before it can actually get released.
0: I love, I love learning about that. Thanks for sharing all that. Um, it's cool to see those experiences from, you know, firsthand. Uh, yeah. And I can imagine what your frequent flyer mile uh, account looked like after that year.
1: <laughs> yeah, luckily, luckily I was uh, much younger, uh, so it is uh, not as bad on me, but yeah, that was, uh, that was a lot of flying, but it was it was great. It was a great experience.
0: Awesome. Well, you know, maybe we should talk about Web3 a little bit at some point. on us do it. Yeah. It's the name, name of the show, but I just love to geek out on stuff like that. So oh, yeah. uh, anyways, you you said, uh, you know, Ethereum was your kind of impetus for becoming seriously interested. Were you reading the white paper in like 2015 or was was, uh, was that how you kind of got introduced to it?
1: Yeah. So I think it was a friend that brought it up and they're like, Hey, there's this thing and you can like actually program it. Uh, and I was like, Oh, this is fascinating. And I think with my background, when it came to like finance and then now the technical bent, bringing those two together, like made it really unique. And I was like, Oh wow, there's this way to do essentially like, and I, and I I love automation. (laughs) Um, like it's nice when you can automate away a lot of things. And so like the whole automation portion of it mixed with the finance was, was a part that got me really, really interested. It didn't, at the very beginning, of course, uh, there wasn't a ton of known use cases. And so it felt a lot more like tinkering. And then there was a whole ICO craze that was happening Uh, And people were asking me to write like smart contracts or or whatever to like help them do their ICOs. And I was like trying to get to the bottom of like, what value are you actually creating? And why are you creating this token? And like, no one had real answers. And I'm like, I'm not doing this. This is not Uh,
0: equity in a company, sir.
1: (laughs) No, no, I'm not doing this just to take people's money for some random thing that makes no sense.
0: Um, Was it friends or were you like in discords? Like what, what was the environment like when you were going through that period?
1: Yeah, it was, it was more discord and yeah, people, uh, would reach out. Like I would, I would go to, um, different like hackathons or sessions just to learn more about it. Uh, cause I, ultimately like I also really love, uh, I think the part that really gets me excited is the ability for you to essentially own your own money, like self custodial, uh, your, your own assets and in the future, right. Be able to essentially determine who has access to what and who can do what, um, and that to me is like the most like interesting part because that is uh, totally like the opposite of how the system works today. And like when I was working over at Goldman, like it, it's kind of crazy to think, like you, you pretty much hand over the keys. Like our, the, the team that I was helping build out, like our average account size was like $80 million. And like the, these, these, it was mostly nonprofits and endowments and they would be like, here you go, like here's our entire endowment. And like they have zero control over it. And they would give us um, parameters that we would need to sit in. And I'm like, all of this could be done like through blockchain. And you can actually still have the ownership and still, and like an amount of things that people do with your money that you don't actually see or don't realize, unless you're like really paying attention, like is scary. You mean
0: my money's not in my account? That may have been an issue recently at SVB. Uh-
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, that and like... And and like the if you're like private wealth advisors, they could be just buying different types of products and like there could be fees associated with them and they're hidden behind a bunch of things and you're just like you don't even have any idea what they're actually doing with your own money and that's that's scary. So like I think those are the parts that got me really excited. But it was it was before DeFi was there and all of that. And so I think people are just trying to figure out what to do with this thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people were, and they, a lot of the the people that were introduced around your time were, uh, mostly interested because of that programmable aspect. You know, they'd probably seen Bitcoin at some point and realized, oh, this is a great single use case, right. For, you know, digital money, but what happens when you can program like what a token represents, um, and that, that was Ethereum and continues to be Ethereum, um, upon which you're, you're still building on. So, um. You you get into it. Uh, what year did you leave Pivotal? When'd you start? when did you uh, move over?
1: So I, I officially so yeah I was over at VMware. Uh, I officially joined Consensus in 2021. So it's still yeah. relatively recent. I would say I've been there for a little over a year and a half. But yeah, the year and, and, three, and a half that's like, like
0: the, you're like a, a long, long OG, time. man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, feels so like a long time. You uh you you went to join Consensus. Was Consensus and Consensus Mesh? Uh, still, one thing uh, at that point. No, or had they already? Been so that was,
1: out? yeah. So that was that was recently after they finally like set up Consensus Software Inc., right? Which is like we're going to build an actual tech company. We're going to leverage the things that worked really well during the Mesh days, uh, uh, or I uh, guess, yeah, during like original Consensus days. Uh, we're going to take. Minimash, we're going to try gonna and confuse and the audience
0: as much as possible right now. <laughs> mesh <Yeah>. Consensus <laughs> Consensus <Yeah>. Mesh. There <laughs> anyway,
1: was yeah. there was Consensus. <laughs> And a hub and spoke system and they just invested in a bunch of things they took what worked made it a software company and then separated out like kind of the an incubator and uh, venture arm um and yeah so yeah that was that was already the separation that was there and so yeah i was coming in and i think that was one of the parts that really excited me like it is a new company right at that time uh it was still pretty early and like a lot of the growing pains were there how do we actually structure a real software organization um and we were scaling up from i think when i joined it was like 350 uh 350 people and now we're at about 800 um and so we're definitely like going through that scaling figuring out how these different uh products fit together and and again it like goes back to all the stuff i was doing at pivotal it's like how do you structure for this size and for this growth um and it was also it was like a very unique situation too because you, you actually had a lot of companies come together so you had different cultures Different ways of working. You had people who were CEOs of companies now coming together and trying to work together, and then having some form of like management on top of that. So, so that that whole part took a while to kind of suss out.
0: So you were you went from pivotal where you, I mean, essentially were hiring these a lot of these people, right, uh, to grow the team <laughs> to another company where everybody had already been hired and they'd already kind of been in a single place. And no. I can imagine, you know, some people put up a, a little bit of a fight, at least about like what they wanted to see. And as the as the companies combined and then the hierarchy, like the decision making. Right. Like how are yeah. you making decisions when you've got two people that are CEOs and maybe one person has more people, but one person has more revenue. And, you know, which products get like, which brands going to take the name and, and all that. That's interesting. So you were helping with that right as as you started to be in there or were you just more focused heads down on the product
1: yeah so i luckily came in like most of that was was figured out there's still some parts i think what was nice is uh, everyone had the same ethos and vision right so like the way of working and maybe the timing or how we get there was is different and like now we're we're much more aligned i'd say um, but the ethos of like everyone's super passionate Right. And we have some like a ton of very smart people at Consensus, and they're all, all like very driven. Uh, and I think that helped. Right. So, like, a lot of times people get pushed back the egos and go, like, we're all going for the same thing. Uh, how do we make this work? And how do we make this work now in this bigger picture? And so, yeah, luckily when I came in, uh, a lot of those structures were kind of set up at the point, but uh, we were still doing too much. Right. Like, there's way too many things that we're going after, and we didn't have necessarily a, a ton of product managers at the company, and so uh, that was kind of the part of how do we how do we add product managers? What do we expect from our product managers? Um, and then how do we like drive that focus and alignment across our different groups was really kind of the premise that I came into to help um, clarify, I would say. And so yeah, joining me on the protocol side, so the very bottom of the stack, uh, pretty much like drove getting rid of our uh, private um private blockchains uh and so something like quorum uh and really focus on the public permissionless uh aspect and that aligned more with like our strategy and what we we're doing on the metamask and then Fira side and so like that was a, a whole whole big part too so hiring a bunch of pms restructure refocus us get that zk VM up and running um was really like what i what i tried to come into
0: so you you the the decision primarily came out of all right, let's find what's more strategically aligned public or private and then you go the public route what what does the structure look like now?
1: yeah so um yeah, so coming in like it was it was more of this like let's have a, a product leader in the space and figure out where we should go uh, and so yeah, started by just talking to a bunch of people and then also just like trying to understand like what is that val- like actually validated and what's not so we're actually doing a, a like most of consensus' revenue before we add swaps to metamask was from the like large uh, enterprises and so it was very much from the private permission space like that was our bread and butter so we had a ton of services we were selling quorum like the, that was where we were making the tens of millions of dollars and then once swaps was added uh, we saw like exponential growth when it comes to, to metamask and we started like that was really uh, started to realize that there's a different way to approach this and things like CBDCs that's like a decade long uh, journey and that's not something that of course we have time for and um, and and so yeah so it was very much like okay let's make sure that across the entire stack and that's why consensus is in a unique position where it has like all the way from the very bottom uh, of the protocol all the way to the top like a like MetaMask has all those different components let's just make sure that we line them up. And so at this stage, right, we're only doing public permissionless. And so that's why we have um, our clients, uh, Ethereum clients, Besu and Teku. And then we have our ZKVM uh, Linea. Um, and then we of course have R and D group that works closely with all core devs and just like tries to contribute to the Ethereum ecosystem to continue to drive it forward, um, which is a big part. And then on that stack, right, we have Infura, and then we have MetaMask. And like that's like aligning that was a really big, Uh, I would say effort and anything outside of that, uh, we essentially got rid of. So there's a bunch of products called Codify, didn't have a ton of validation that were associated with them. There were a bunch of like financial privatives um, and essentially just uh, end of life, all those products as well. So I felt like my entire, uh, I kind of did a similar thing. I felt like my entire first year was coming again with the hatchet. (laughs) um, You guys watch out. You
0: see Ryan coming into your company. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I <laughs> love that though but they they trusted you to do that right because you had done something similar before and you knew you had the experience behind you which also probably helped you make these critical business and strategic decisions the right way
1: yeah yeah it was uh I think that was helpful and yeah I mean everyone at consensus was extremely supportive um and and like very team oriented and so I think yeah that was huge some of the stuff too was already kind of in people's uh, minds but I kept I helped kind of like push it over the edge uh, so that I didn't really like speed it up. Uh, so I think luckily we weren't doing anything at that time that was too far out there. Uh, and so I think that certainly helped. Uh, but yeah, it's just like, how do you actually approach it? How do you speed up, speed up that process? And, and like, what does good look like in terms of like team structures and, and how do you go through some of these changes? Uh, certainly my experience was was helpful there.
0: Yeah. The, you know, going back to kind of the shared ethos, was that like, kind of like the, we want to see this industry succeed ethos. We believe that it's going to add a lot of value. um, Or was it like just being a part of consensus already?
1: Um, You're you're talking about in terms of like the ethos of individuals.
0: Yeah. You said, you know, you, you didn't have as hard of a time as you would think trying to integrate the ethos because everybody was kind of fighting for the same thing. Was that just kind yeah. of like the, the Web3 ethos, if you will?
1: Yeah, I would say it's a Web3 ethos, but it's like there's a lot of people that uh, don't like the current systems uh, or how they operate and think that they can be so much better. And it's really like people want to help others uh, is a big part of it and want to enable others. And so a lot of, like everyone at Consensus, has that like kind of dream and that vision that we can use this technology to make, like our world, a better place. And I think that just like made, makes it so much easier when everyone's on that same sort of like culture and, and vision. Um, and yeah, then it, then it breaks down to like, what is the right thing to do now? Uh, and because it is such an interesting technology that can be used in so many different ways, that makes it hard because there's a lot of sparkly objects. And so that's where all the like heated discussions come in. Um, but with all that passion, right, you're going to get some heat that comes from it. Uh, which also makes it for a very, like, uh, interesting and enlightening uh, space to be in.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially 2021, early 2022, <laughs> sparkly objects were everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> which, which makes it, you know, what a lot of people would say, and, and, you know, some might call it cliche, is that these are the best times to build because there's just not a lot of distraction, right? The signal-noise ratio is completely different right now
1: it's it's so yeah the amount of things that we were looking at and like we're trying to be like just stay focused and put the blinders on and now it's yeah much easier uh to stay like focused on what we actually wanted to do and just continue to drive in that multi-year roadmap um
0: i'm gonna ask a a somewhat unrelated question but but just curious because i i've been trying to explain decentralized identity to a lot of people lately Um, and, um, I know that you guys have a big, you know, division dedicated to ZK and stuff like that. Would you be willing to take a stab at explaining that to the audience exactly how something like that works? Like as if they have no idea what ZK stands for. Um, yeah, I think it'd be
1: interesting. Yeah. I'm curious on when you talk about decentralized identity, like what aspect do you mean? because I'm, I'm happy to talk about like the, the ZK, like EBM and, and kind of like the premise of it. Um, but I'm curious, like there are different parts of identity that we're certainly looking at when it yeah. comes to like MetaMask and what it means for an individual. So yeah, curious kind of uh, if you're able to talk a little bit more about that part.
0: Yeah, it's usually like in the realm of access, right? So like if I need to verify who I am, Right, what aspects of my identity do you actually need? And not having those all stored in one place, and or having to fill them out every single time that you need to do a thing, like park your freaking car. Um, you know, uh, that is usually when it comes up. And honestly, I've had like three or four people reach out for the show inbound lately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> around it, but I feel like a lot of people are at least funded or are trying to build these companies, so it's I'm super
1: interested in. It. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's interesting. So, so. I think from uh, our perspective, identity is, is a huge premise, and like we see the wallet as actually like your a uh, form of identity. And so, what does this mean in terms of online ind- identity, and then your connection to like you as an actual individual and in person, and how do you determine that? Uh, and, and the other part too is like, what data do you give to what sort of uh, maybe institutions? Uh, and you don't want to make sure that, like, your social security card is just sitting there right in front of everyone at all times. Um, so I, I don't know if I would necessarily say, like, the the ZKVM is a, um, it is more of, like, an enabler to have, like, it, it's really for the scalability and cost sort of parts. And then it allows us to do essentially what we can do on mainnet on the L2. And so it allows for that, like, same sort of programmability but uh, the part that we're really looking at is like, what does it mean when it comes to like your individual wallet and the connections of both like on-chain and off-chain data? And so this goes back to like the hybrid approach where you can go and you can have uh, a way to, I'm trying to see like, but like think, think about the world in which there is a device that you have with you usually at all times. Yeah. Um, and I have my little like MetaMask and uh, my crypto in there. that um, so you have it at all times, that tends to be some form of identity that's associated with it. You then can have a series of different accounts. And so having an L2 allows for you to spin out uh, multiple different accounts at a very low cost and use them as smart contract accounts, which means that it allows for you to uh, essentially program how each of those accounts operate. Within each of those, then you can have different forms of like sub identities and have different permissions on how you share the data and information uh, that is associated with those accounts. And so I think the part for us in terms of uh, what that means is that you could then, uh, if you attach your account uh, or your wallet to a given uh, DAP or a given institution, uh, you can then pick and choose what, uh, what parameters are gonna be shared in that specific instance. And if like a lot of the uh, kind of side with non, non-fungible non tokens, uh, you can then have an off, essentially an off-chain database with some more of that information that only those constituents can then access. And so it's really the on-chain data that's saying here's your connectors, but it's only uh, those that have the actual access controls that can uh, access the, the detailed data in those off-chain events. And so I don't know if that really, like, answered it, but I I think no one's really solved uh, the way of secure, like, securely doing true identity at this time. We are creating, like, online identities and your uh, different forms of, like, what does an identity attach to a single account, but no one's actually solved that off-chain and off-chain access controls in a seamless way yet uh, for us to do it. But I do think, like, a lot of the account abstraction and the L2s are making it possible for us to actually get there and so i think we talked about this before but like the technology is finally at a point this year that i think we can actually execute on all the visions and ideas that people had like a decade ago and like it hasn't been at that point so we can actually now finally start doing these things
0: yeah that's it's it's true I mean I, I know that on our last call we had fun talking about how grocery shopping might change um, if you if you remember the conversation, do you care to elaborate for the audience?
1: So I think it was we were talking about like the premise of uh, you you correct me but I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a guess of what I think I think we were talking about was uh, you can essentially go in um, and you can go and you can pay of course with your phone. Uh, essentially, you could pay with a crypto wallet uh, very seamlessly uh, to do that, and you could as a re- as a return, your receipt is an NFT. And what's interesting about NFTs is right there they have uh, essentially a bunch of output, and it's all all uh, code that you can go and you can get all the details that are associated with that receipt. And so it changes the game in terms of you just getting a paper receipt and you're like, okay, I spent sixty dollars. You don't know exactly the details of what you actually spent on and uh within nft getting that response like you could have every single thing like i bought x amount of bananas and and all this and so you could actually start breaking down like the um your budget in a much better way you could also start figuring out like how uh people are spending in a certain environment or a certain place and it starts to give you just like essentially superpowers uh associated with any purchase that you actually make and it brings together like as of now i don't know how many different uh systems maybe are in place uh at the moment in order to just like make that happen right so you have like credit cards you have the processing you have the receipt like companies uh and then you have all the ones who are like inputting every single product into the database every single time like think about that as all one one like uh solution and it's just like all of a sudden it's just like it's a game changer right like you don't have to go and repurpose the way that you put in bananas to the system and then all of a sudden like how you actually go and make the payment and who gets the data and information and if that becomes open and accessible the amount of different applications that can use it and so yeah i think it was that kind of on the realm of what we we're talking about
0: actually it was not but that okay. was very interesting <laughs> um, and it actually expanded on exactly what we were talking about which we were talking about it from the vendor angle Okay. We could go in now that you have account abstraction and you can allocate costs where you would like to allocate them. Vendors could start to offer incentives for you to purchase their products and you could pass on the costs of that. So when you pair that with your version, which is this single pane of glass that the digital wallet creates, um, you now have, A way to access and use that data in one place without any one person having to be responsible for that data. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Which to me is like one of the biggest use cases. I mean, that just to, to, to rally on that a little bit, the thing that got me interested in tech was working at Marketo and understanding the power of integrations between different softwares to offer a full like vision of who the customer is. Right. That's exactly what digital wallets do, just a hundred X better because you don't have to build anything. You just have yes. to be able to connect the digital wallet and all of a sudden, all of that data is available.
1: Yes, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's like uh, the infrastructure is already there which is makes it go so much faster in terms of what you can build. And and to the point, yeah, that uh, I do remember now that uh, we we're talking about from the brand side that they could essentially programmably uh, give discounts and like help drive people. And the part two that's starting to pop up, right, is like, you're seeing for brands is pretty tough when it comes to privacy with cookies, uh, where they're starting to like, not have that much data and information about their users and like what they're doing and who they are. And the whole point here is like with, with NFTs, it allows for you to determine like, uh, who the users are in a systematic way. And then you can essentially target them to hopefully like incentivize them to buy your products. Uh, and, and like, that's fascinating too, when you start thinking about like, how can applications change? Uh, so like if you're Nike and you have a user that's buying a bunch of different shoes and they get an NFT that's associated with that, when they get onto their site into like onto the Nike site or walk into even a store, uh, and connect their wallet with all these different NFTs, like the whole thing can completely shift and change based off of that. And like, there's no way to do that right now. Um, it makes it like very, very difficult to have that.
0: And by the way, there's an air of consumer protection. If we're talking about uh, food, by the way, what does it take to recall a bag of lettuce now? What if every single one of those bags could be tracked to specific customer accounts and that data was very easy to access, makes <laughs> it a lot easier to take the unsafe product off the shelves and save the company money for not having to recall every single product they issued.
1: Yeah. And notify people.
0: And notify people right. too, right? To the yeah, digital. No here, yeah. yeah. Here, here's a message. So, um, Account abstraction is not an intuitive word. Um, what, what exactly does account abstraction mean? And then, you know, if you want to get a little technical, talking about four three three seven, um, just like what what was that jump? What is the big difference there? I know we've kind of alluded to it with the example, but just trying to explain that.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so this is one of the things that I, I do think is like it's new, and this is like a huge unlocker uh, in terms of. Uh, us making the user experience much better from the wallet perspective for individuals. So there's a few key parts of account abstraction uh, that really like provide uh, that accessibility. Um, So one of those is this thing called Paymasters. And so it makes it so that you can actually determine who does the paying of gas. Uh, And so as of now, right, when it comes to anything crypto, it's like when you do the transaction, you have to pay whatever fee that's associated with it. Uh, in the like, credit card world, uh, it is the merchant that is saying, I'm willing to take the fee in order to help uh, make this transaction go smoothly so that this, uh, my customer will buy my goods. And so now uh, with account abstraction, it allows for that to essentially happen, where a consumer can go, they can buy a good, they don't pay any additional fee. It's the merchant that essentially pays the fee. So that's uh, one, of the diff- one of the parts that comes into it. The other is a bundler. And so as of now, uh, when, if you use like MetaMask, uh, when you do a transaction, you have to sign every single transaction. And sometimes like you're, you're doing like five clicks every single time, just to do like one little thing, you can bundle them all together and run the transaction. And so again, like it's, it's, I just say yes. And in the background, you can run a bunch of different processes to get the outcome that you want. And so that again, simplifies it. So it's, it goes back to like swipe that credit card, you do it once and a bunch of things happen. Um, The other is now uh, merging uh, uh, essentially different types of accounts. And so uh, there's Arjun and a few others who are really doing this early on with uh, smart contract accounts. And what this allows is the ability to essentially set up different forms of accounts uh, with uh, logic that's associated with it. And uh, as of today, uh, so, so MetaMask, we call it an EOA, uh, where you essentially have a, uh, your password that is going to keep your private key encrypted. And that is the thing that's going to do the sign. It's very rigid. That's like all it essentially does for you. When you talk about smart contract accounts, it allows for you to have different recovery methods. So you no longer need a uh, recovery phrase, like the random 12-word uh, recovery phase from MetaMask, you can actually start yeah, doing social. Don't
0: <laughs> uh,
1: worry about what it is. Yeah, so you can start doing social recovery. So you just have your friends that set it up. You could start doing Web2 as your recovery. You can change depending on each account. You can de- change your uh, recovery methods depending on like what assets you actually have in there. Um, and then you can also automate some of like subscription like payments. And so all of that again, like the whole point here is abstract away all the minutiae that's associated with trying to make the same like each transaction function and make it so that you no longer you don't need passwords you don't need a recovery phrase you don't need to sign every single transaction um and you can go and depending on within your accounts change the way in which those operate that are best suited for the type of assets that you have in there what you actually want on your and so we can uh kind of like an example here is is we recently built it where you could send uh a token to someone not knowing their wallet address and not knowing uh, if they even have a wallet uh, or their like decentralized identifier uh, you can just send it through a link we can spin up a wallet for them uh, in the span of like 30 seconds and all of a sudden they can take those assets and have them and they can send them to anyone that they would like and they did no other form of onboarding and it's literally just attached to their phone And at some point, if they want to, to make it so that if they lose their phone, they can get those funds, they can set up their recovery methods, and it's no longer the SRP or anything, right? It's just using your biometrics, and you can use the social recovery. And so, like, that is where it really changes the game, because, yeah, it gets rid of, as of today, like, I think the hard part is you need to understand how blockchain works to use the products in the space, and we need to get to a place where no one needs to understand blockchain and all of a sudden they just get the value and that's where we're, we're really trying to push things
0: you know i think that the phrase you just said uh, has been said on this show a thousand times by both me and my guests but this has been the most interesting and i guess viable evidence of how it's actually happening we are meeting people where they are now yes
1: yes and and i think it's and it's better Right, like I think we can build a product that's better than Venmo, better than quite like, Zell, but like we are actually the, what we've been trying to solve is a lot of the problems in the web 3 space to just like get those things better uh, and so now we I think we're at a point where we can actually solve web 2 problems right which was like the whole point of like using a new technology what are the what real problem? use
0: cases <laughs>
1: yeah yeah we can like actually now solve them which is which is super exciting and it's like literally this year, is when this, this technology has been, become available.
0: So, uh, going back to the kind of, um, taking the fees and being able to, uh, uh, program them to who is, who's assuming those fees back to the merchant. Um, does that also, does it also follow that the fees will be reduced? That there'll be lower fees um than what we currently like because like for a lot of merchants and you know their biggest cost is this three percent or more that they're paying to these credit card companies um that a lot of people think is not justified at this point Mm -hmm. Um, but i don't know does that change as well
1: yeah absolutely i mean so, so so i think the parts that all come there's a bunch of things that are all coming together at the same time that really make it interesting right and so uh uh think the paymaster part so who who takes the fees is certainly helpful uh, but then in terms of actually decreasing it's really like the ZKVMs and the L2s so now all of a sudden you're going from uh, like having a mainnet gas cost which is relatively expensive to like a cent per transaction right and so like when you're when you're thinking about I and mean, your transaction size can be like huge right and so like what is that as a percentage so instead of paying the 3% for credit card fees you're paying like 0.001% on the sides of the actual transaction. And another thing that's that's amazing uh, is because of the difference in terms of who can pay is uh, whatever system you're using could potentially like even subsidize those payments hmm. because they're uh, making money in some other method. And so all of a sudden, you could essentially, we, like we could, right? If MetaMask sitting on Linea, we could essentially make it so that you pay zero for some period of time, as long as you are also staking or, or doing something else on our system. And like that again becomes very fascinating. Think about like a merchant in Thailand that's like running a street cart. All of a sudden you can, uh, you you essentially have like cash, right? This is di- like the first version of real digital cash that you can give around and essentially have no fee associated with it and it's instant. Like that is super crazy powerful. And like the individual has full control over it. They don't need to put any form of like KYC. And uh, when they want to send it to someone, if they don't have a wallet already, like in 30 seconds, they have that like digital cash in their phone and attached to their device.
0: Do you take this? No, here's a link. Now you do.
1: (laughs) Now you add it. It's great. And like pay me in the QR, like everyone's using QR codes and of course across India and China like this is already common practice and there are billions of people already doing this today uh and the difference is like you again get like full control you don't have to like rely on another a third party you don't have to rely on a bank you have absolute control of your own assets and like that again is like the really big driver here
0: but up to this point when someone said that they're like what do you mean are you an anarchist well it's like no i'm actually just gonna make your life cheaper and easier you're welcome Mm -hmm right exactly. like for the first time you can now say that whereas before that argument always went on well i even made a video once where i was like so you got to download metamask wallet and then you got to get your seed phrase and here's where you yeah. want to store it and like nope not no. anymore nowadays don't you know how to open your phone because if you not know open your phone you can, do <laughs>
1: you can have it yeah yeah and then like the the thing that keeps popping up, right it's like i don't know you go to lunch with someone in London. And all of a sudden it's like okay how do i how do i pay you if i don't have any cash on me say like we split the bill and it was like 50 50 pounds like how do i give you 50 pounds like it is it is convoluted to get back to someone without having the actual cash and like this makes it so it's a no-brainer it's like you want 50 pounds here done in like a second I always, um
0: i always go back to uh an example actually with one of your former colleagues ian andrews uh where we were explaining that. Uh, If you want to start uh, a manufacturing company in Nigeria, say... And you have, um, and you have to pay in U.S. dollars because it's a global reserve currency. Uh, you can now pay in USDC, and you don't have to wait the twenty to thirty days that these banks to take to convert your your Naira into uh, U.S. dollars, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, by the way, oh, your manufacturing costs have changed by then, so I hope you converted a little extra because inflation's out, yeah. out of the roof right now. So yeah. like, all of that starts to come together and. Oh, man, it's that's beautiful. Uh, it is nearing the top of the hour, though. Oh, uh, my gosh, to, you can totally keep going. <laughs> I know, I know. I have to I have to we, we, You'll have to come back on. Uh, yes, I think yes. it's just the, the solution there. Um, and uh, maybe in person sometime. That would be a lot of fun. That'd be great. Um, so uh, I do have my two final closing questions. Uh, the first one is how do you define Web3? Uh,
1: yeah, so I think mine is relatively simple. Uh, it's any any application that's leveraging blockchain technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's it.
0: Fair, fair. So uh, the next one's forward-looking. It's uh, where do you see yourself in the space in the next six to twelve months, and then where do you see yourself in the space in the next five to ten years?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, so I think the next uh, six to twelve months is pretty easy. Uh, I'm helping drive out uh, this product that we call MetaMask Portfolio. Uh, like I'm I'm a big believer in terms of what we're trying to do with it, which is make it the hub of Web three, so a safe, secure place for people to come back to, kind of like your homepage. Uh, and then jump out to kind of the frontier and interact. Uh, and then the other part too is like, we want to make it so you never have to use a centralized exchange ever. Right. So we can protect people from a BlockFi and FTX a Celsius. Uh, and again, put that power to the users, uh, but they get to leverage all the, kind of the value adds that are that are associated with it. And So uh, next six to 12 months is really getting it to a place where anyone and everyone can use them in a portfolio and adds kind of like the core core primitives that are there to make people feel safe and secure, and we can help onboard a lot of people uh, from that aspect. Uh, I think the next five to 10 years, like in the crypto space, right, one year is already crazy, so uh, we'll see. But I, I hope, uh, like, I would love to continue driving that aspect of, of kind of what we were talking about at the end, which is uh, can we really make a game-changing way for funds uh, to be managed and handled and, and uh, essentially distributed? And that's that's really where I'd love to, to be focusing
0: yeah, sounds like we're we're at a place now where real change can happen, and and there isn't the sacrifice of having to learn a, a entire list of how to keep things safe and how to download certain things and keep them away. I mean, it's it is a huge barrier to entry uh, to the so point where where what used to happen is like Zach, it, listen, man, like it sounds like it's really cool. You just do it for me. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Like, and you, then you got a whole nother creation because what happens if you don't have that relationship in the future there's just oh so gosh. many things that could go wrong in between there whether it's them trying to learn how to do it or having you know someone that they know and trust at that point in time do it for them um, as yeah. we've seen uh, with with recent happenings um, so you know Ryan this has been awesome man I've really enjoyed it I really appreciate you coming on me too thanks for having me Zach Thanks for tuning in to Web3 With Me. If you enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter, at Zach underscore French underscore.